Praise the Lord. If you would turn to John chapter 4 again. We're going to teach once again in John 4. The title in the message is Give Me to Drink. This is Give Me to Drink, Worship in Spirit and Truth. So this would be number 3. John 4, beginning in verse 1, we'll read again through verse 26. It says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And it says, And he must needs go through Samaria. And then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or noon. And there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat or food. And then said the woman of Samaria unto him, Well, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Well, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that said to thee, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, and neither come hither to draw. And Jesus said unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Well, you've well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that sayest thou truly. And the woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said unto him, I know that Messiah comes, which is called Christ. And when he is come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto you am he. And Father, we bow our hearts and our heads before you, Lord, with this, your word open before us. And I ask, Father, you'll speak to all of us today and teach us what it is to worship you in spirit and truth. And I thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. We talked last week about the fact that most people in the world, including Christians, think that men, people in general, are seeking after God. And the world would say, well, you know, that's why there's so many religions out there, because they have a desire to know God and to serve him. And then they'll always add, they like to add on to that, well, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, or Christian, because everybody's serving the same God. Hear that all the time. And that's not true, is it? 
We know that's not true by definition. It couldn't be true. But we said the Bible paints a different picture. In fact, an entirely different picture. Sinners have a need for God. We know that they do. But they are not seeking Him to fill that need. They want relief from the guilt they have. They want peace. And they're thirsty in a sense, but they satisfy their thirst how? We talked about they'll go to bars, they'll go to sports stadiums, they'll do it through work, entertainment, and sometimes just religion is how they're going to fill that need. And Jesus said to all of that, we talked last time, he said to all of that, he said, whosoever drinketh this water shall thirst again. Whosoever shall drink this water how the world satisfies their thirst shall drink again. And we said you could put that banner above every sports bar, saloon, and sports arena. Whoever drinks of this water is going to thirst again. Men really are not seeking that living water that's going to satisfy their thirst, the living God. We quoted Romans 3, and I want to make this point because we've heard teaching like this before, and yet I will all the time hear people say things like, well, he's a good person. He's really got a good heart for the Lord. And that's not what the New Testament teaches not for a sinner because it says this it says as it is written there is none righteous no not one it says there is none that understands there is none that seeks after God there is none that seeks after God not one person will ever seek after God ever until God begins to seek him that's the only way it'll happen. We got to remember that. I mean, when you're talking to a sinner, you're talking to a blind person. You are. The point is, it's not to try to get more clever, to have a little better approach, to have whatever. I mean, you need to have a good approach. You don't want to turn them off. But the key is, you need to be praying that the Spirit of God will open their eyes as you're sharing with them. Because that's the only hope they have. That's the only hope any of us have. Christianity is... The one religion and the only religion that teaches that man is not seeking after God, but that God is seeking for men. The eyes of the Lord are running to and fro over the whole earth. He's seeking. He's searching. For what? And for whom? That's what we're going to talk about today. Look at verse 23. It tells us. It says, but the hour comes and Jesus says, now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And look what it says. For the Father seeks such to worship Him. So He's seeking those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that is what Jesus is doing right here. That's what we're reading about in John chapter 4. He's doing the Father's will. And what did he say? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Son can do nothing of Himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Father, the Son does likewise. We've been talking about this through this chapter. Jesus came to do what? To seek and save the lost. Why? Because that's what the Father's will is. Because the lost are the ones that are transformed into true worshipers. And that's what happens to this woman in Samaria. The Father, through Jesus Christ, brings his grace to this woman. She wasn't looking for anything but to go get her water that day. And you know what? By the time he is done with her, she is a true worshiper. Amen. That's, right. That's what God does. That's what he does. 
So we say, how does that happen? How does that work? How, how does that work for us? You know, we, we talked about that God baptized Jesus with the Holy Spirit as he was praying. The Spirit came down on him at his water baptism. And then we said he was tested, taken out into the wilderness, tested and approved. And after that happened, it says that he came forth how? He was filled with the Spirit. But we read in Luke 4, when he came out of the wilderness, it said that he came out in the power of the Spirit. And from there on out, that's just like when we are Spirit-filled. Jesus had to rely on the Holy Spirit, just like we do. He was led by the Spirit on where to go, given wisdom by the Spirit on what to say. He was empowered by the Spirit to operate in the gifts. That doesn't happen in non-charismatic, non-spirit-filled churches. It doesn't. It should happen here, shouldn't it? A spirit-filled church. He's our example. He's our pattern. And we're to walk in his steps. We've talked about that. That's the challenge, really. That's the challenge of the New Testament, isn't it? For all of us. All of us in here. We say we're spirit-filled. He's demonstrating for us how the Holy Spirit will enable you to do the Father's will, to seek and to save the lost. How did the Spirit lead him? He said he must needs go through Samaria. The Spirit led him up through Samaria, right? And it was a divine appointment. And he gets to Sychar, sends the disciples after food, and then it says that he sits on a well. I still can't get over that picture in Jesus, the Son of God, sitting on a well, sweaty and thirsty, all by himself. Until eventually that woman comes, doesn't she? She comes to the well. She's going to get water. She's all alone. Why is she all alone? Because she's an outcast. She's got a bad reputation. And when she comes, Jesus asks her for a drink. She's pretty surprised about that. But the whole time, the Holy Spirit's giving him wisdom and leading in the conversation that he has. He goes from natural water to living water that will quench her thirst forever. And when that woman hears that, we read about it, she's like, please, Give me this water that I thirst not and that I don't have to keep coming here making a spectacle out of myself coming by myself at noon because I can't come with the other woman because they don't want to have anything to do with me. Please give me that water, he asked her. Jesus is like, the water I'm going to give you, you need to be thirsty, spiritually thirsty. The spirit that anointed him anoints him to operate a gift of a word of knowledge. And when he reads her mail, What does he do? He brings her into the heat. He's going to get her thirsty. He brings her into the light because her sin is exposed. Bring your husband. Oh, I don't have a husband. Oh, yeah, that's a pretty sly answer. But that's because you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. You put yourself in that woman's shoes. How do you think she felt when that happened? Embarrassed? Convicted? Uncomfortable? Or Multiple choice, all of the above. I think all of the above, myself, really. And what does she say to him? You, sir, are a prophet. And by the way, so we can get off that topic, I've got a question for you, Mr. Prophet. It's a question of worship. That's where we're at. Look what it says in verse 19. And the woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Let me ask you this. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship you know not what, but we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. 
but the hour comes and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Her question is, where is it that we should worship That's where the arguments at between the Samaritans and the Jews. They had their temple on Mount Gerizim that was destroyed. And they're saying, well, then there's a temple in Jerusalem. She's like, where is it that we should worship? And Jesus is telling her, look, it's not a question of where. The question is how and whom do you worship? Because the Father is seeking those not where, but that worship him in spirit and in truth. The Father's seeking, and He's still seeking, isn't He? Seeking worshipers. And like I said, by grace, He found this woman, didn't He? And by grace, He found you. And by grace, He found me. He's seeking worshipers. For me, I can say this, and I think you would say the same thing. I don't want to be passed over because my worship is unacceptable. I don't want Him to be seeking and to moving on. He sought me with his grace. And I want to make my calling and election sure. Because Jesus told the Pharisees this in Mark 7. He says, well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips. But he says their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me. In vain they worship me. He says, Their worship is useless. They're saying the right things, going through the right forms, but he says, they're hypocrites. Their worship is useless. It's vain. Martin Lloyd-Jones raised this question. What is the highest and most significant activity that any company of God's people could be engaged in? And this was his answer. To worship God and to offer him the praise And he didn't stop there to offer him praise, the praise that is acceptable to him. Because it's not just spirit, it's spirit and truth is how the worship has to be offered. So what is worship? You know, the English word worship has its root meaning in worth. To attribute worth to something is how we get our English word worship, to acknowledge value. The English would address their mayors, you know what they would call them? His worship, out of respect for their value or their worth. Now we may, I'm not going to say who or look, but we may have a future mayor in here. If that happens, we'll have to call him his worship, right? <laughs> I'm not going to say any more than that, but won't that be something, right? Out of respect and the value of the man in the office. But that's our English word for worship. But the New Testament and the Old Testament words for worship, they carry this idea even further than that, more than just worth or value. Proskuneo is the Greek word used here in John 4 for worship, and it's the word that's used mostly through the New Testament for worship. There's other words that are translated worship. But it literally means to prostrate yourself before somebody and to kiss their feet or the ground in front of them. That's what it means. It's a humble acknowledgement, in the dust acknowledgement of the presence, the glory, the worth, and the authority of the one you're bowing before. That's what that word worship means in the Greek. You're getting in the lowest place possible you can get. 
before the one you're worshiping. And we see that. That is what we have in the New Testament. So if you would, put something there and turn back to Revelation chapter 4. We'll look at two places in Revelation here. This is what eternity will look like. Revelation chapter 4 and beginning in verse 8, and it says, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who lives forever and ever, Look what it says in verse 10. The four and twenty elders do what? They fall down before him. That's worship that sat on the throne. And worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you've created all things. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. Bowing before the Almighty God that has created all things. That's what worship is. On your face before Him. Acknowledging His greatness and His power. Look over in chapter 7. Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9. And look what it says. It says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations, and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sits upon a throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts. And here it is again, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might beyond to our God forever and ever. Amen. Imagine what a sight that'll be in heaven. An innumerable number of angels and elders, creatures bowing on their face before the throne of God, on their faces worshiping. That's what we're going to see. That's going to be a sight to be held. You know, in Matthew 28, when the two Marys, they came to the tomb and they found only the angel there. And the angel tells them, he's not here. Who are you looking for? He's not here. He's alive. And it says they ran to tell the disciples what they'd seen. It says with joy and fear. With joy and fear. And as they're running Guess what happens? It says, as they went to tell his disciples, behold, all of a sudden it says Jesus met them. They're running to go tell them in joy and fear. And here's Jesus standing in front of them. Jesus met them saying, all hail. And it says they came and what did they do? Did they give him a hug like that's the popular thing to do now? Oh, we just, we hug everybody. Did they do that to the Lord? No, it says they fell at his feet and grabbed hold of his feet, and it says, and they worshipped him. They're not going to give the risen Lord a hug like, Yo, hey, old buddy, how you doing? Glad to see you. Glad you made it out of the tomb. No, no, it's not like that. You don't find anybody that has an encounter with God or the pre-incarnate Christ or afterwards. They are all on the ground worshipping. Yeah. 
I'm saying that kind of changes music, doesn't it? I'm sure they had tears in their eyes, too. With joy and fear, and man, I guarantee you, their joy was made full when they saw him. Bowed down, grabbed his feet. And that's in the Old Testament, too. Bowing in the dust before the Lord. If you would want to look at two places in the Psalms, look at Psalm 95. We used to sing this song. Well, I always liked this song. Psalm 95, beginning in verse 1, it says, Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our elder. We got a couple songs out of these verses. That's one there. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. Why? For the Lord is a great God. Talk about value and worth. And a great king above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his. He made it. And his hands formed the dry land. And look at verse 6. Oh, come because of it. Let us worship and do what? Bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Verse 7, why he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The great God, the one that made the sea. And by his hand he formed the dry land. Oh, come, he is our God. Let us kneel and bow down before him, our maker. The Lord our God, our maker. Look over in Psalm 99, if you would. Verse 5, verses there. Look what the psalmist says, the Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. He sits between the cherubims, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the people. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. The king's strength also loves judgment. Thou dost establish equity, you execute judgment and righteousness in Jacob. And look what he says in verse 5. Exalt ye the Lord our God and worship where? At his footstool. Why? Because God is holy. Isaiah, woe is me. I am undone when I'm in the presence of this holy God. And around these seraphim, holy, holy, holy. That's something we need to experience. So this idea of bowing down, if you remember, we talked about in Nehemiah 8. They get the wall built, and they're back in the presence of the Lord. He's blessed them, and it said they built a pulpit of wood in the center of the street. And all the people came and gathered. It was a raised platform, kind of like this is. When I'm preaching prison, I'm down on the ground, and it raised up. It's just a little easier for everybody to see you and hear you, even though I got a microphone. But that's what's going on. And it says, Ezra ascended up and he stood on the pulpit of wood. And it says in Nehemiah 8 that Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was above all the people. And it says, and when he opened it, the book, all the people, it said, they stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord when they did. And he said, the great God, called him the great God, blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, amen, with lifting up their hands. And then it says, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Because his word is coming up before them. They hadn't heard it. 
They're so thankful, but they're also so reverent. They stood up and, I mean, I don't think, I don't know if I physically could do this. Put my hands up and kneel down and put my face down to the ground. That's a low position, isn't it? Bowing down as low as they can before God. We limit our definition of worship. When you talk and think about worship, most people think that's when we come to church and we sing or when we sing the worship songs. There's praise songs and worship songs. We're limiting it, aren't we, to that? Because we can worship God in our prayer time. Or like here, the word was opened up. There was no singing going on. And it says they bowed down and worshipped. Mary, they came and grabbed his ankles. They're worshipping him. Worship is just bowing down before the Lord and giving him the glory and the honor that's due his name. It can come through singing. That's a great way to do it, isn't it? But it shouldn't just be limited to that, should it? As Eric Alexander, I like this man, he says to worship God is to humble ourselves before his great majesty and to bring him the honor and praise that belongs to him alone. To worship God is to humble ourselves before his great majesty and to bring him the honor and praise that belongs to him alone. Jesus, in talking to this woman, he helps us to understand what is meant by worship by defining what true worship is and what it isn't. Look again at back in John 4, if you go back there, look what he says, verse 20 to 22. She says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. But we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So he's telling her, he says, look, honey, you're wrong in two ways. First of all, you're thinking it's the location. And he's saying it's not the location. It's not whether it's Mount Gerizim or whether it's Jerusalem, because Jesus is saying the time is now at hand. It's here when neither location is going to matter at all. And the second thing He's saying, you're wrong because you don't know what God is looking for. And in that sense, both the Jews and the Samaritans had it wrong. Both of them did. He's pretty blunt with the Samaritan woman. He just flat out tells her that her and her people have no clue what they're doing. So look what it says in verse 22. He says, you worship, you know not what. You guys don't even know what you're doing. That'd be kind of hard to hear, maybe, wouldn't it? You worship, you know not what. And here's why he's saying that, because their worship was a mixed bag. It was part heathen, part Bible. I talked about this, people probably don't remember, but maybe you will the second time around. They didn't accept the whole Old Testament, which was the Bible at the time. The Samaritans only accepted what? What's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. After that, they didn't accept any of it as being true. And that's why they didn't accept Jerusalem as the place where they had to worship and where the temple should be. But also, we talked about this, the Assyrians had carried away Israel, the Israelites captive that lived in the northern area. They brought in these pagan people to live in their land. And when they brought those pagan people in, guess what they brought with them? They're pagan gods, they're in their pagan worship. So what they ended up in is what's called syncretism. And all that is is a big word that means you're blending in religions and cultures. 
It's kind of like we got syncretism coming up in two weeks. You got a pagan holiday and a festival, and it was wedded by the Catholics together, and we have Christ Mass. That's all that is, is syncretism. It's as, it's as simple as that. And God hates that. <laughs> That's not true worship. What ended up happening in 2 Kings 17, it says this of the Samaritans. It said, they feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away captives. They had some beliefs of the Bible and some beliefs of the Assyrians. So they were part right and they were part wrong. They were part good and they were part evil. I would say probably mostly evil. And so syncretism is what you end up with. It's basically sinful. The mixture of the world and true religion. That is what is happening today. And it's getting worse, especially with charismatics in their teaching and in the music. So I'll just say what I got to say. I don't think it'll probably change much, but, you know, they will take scriptures. They'll use scriptural words. They'll use it in their teaching. And I just watched one the other day, took a verse that it pretty obvious to me what it says. And he had that thing by the time he was done with it and saying what the Greek words meant. He had that thing meaning the total opposite of what it meant and what I would teach that it meant. Personally, I would stay away from most charismatic teachers that I know of, especially the ones on TV. That's what I would say. It's the same with music. It used to be there was a lot of groups that you'd get their music and we'd use it here, Christ for the Nations. I haven't listened to them lately. It got to the point where I'm like, to me, this is just pure noise. This isn't worship. It used to have really anointed services. We did a whole tape of theirs in here at our church one time. And it's becoming more and more and more that way. I know a guy that's as unsaved as you could get, but they needed somebody to play the guitar at their church. So he's up there, and he all of a sudden, man, I love worship. I love it. He's a rocker, but he's part of the praise band now. And that's what we have going on here. It's the frog in the water, too. People don't even realize what's happening. Things people wouldn't have listened to now, everybody listens to. I'm just saying, I'm going to leave it there. But when I see the look of the people on these album covers, I'm thinking, I wouldn't have you pray for me. Wouldn't let you lay hands on me. I saw what happened at my school that I went to in the lower classes. They had a dress code that they, all of a sudden everything slacks up and you see the people coming in and the way they look. I'm thinking, you're going to be a youth pastor? And the way you look, the way you dress, the way you carry yourself, the way you carry yourself in class, I wouldn't want you near my child. I'm sorry. Just being honest. That's the way I think it is. It's happening. It happened there in Samaria, and I see it happen in Christendom. I'll leave that alone. I could say more. The Samaritans had the problem of bringing in the world with the worship of God. With the Jews, you can only worship God if you know who he is. The Samaritans had no clue. Jesus said the Jews, though, he said they knew who they worshiped, didn't they? They are the one people on all the earth at that time that had the true revelation of God. We should be forever thankful to the Jewish nation for that. Because the Bible tells us that to them, of all the nations of the earth, was the way of salvation revealed. 
That's why he says salvation is of the Jews. They had the law, the covenants, Paul says in Romans 9, the promises. All of it came through Israel. And they were and they still are God's chosen people. He will come back and set up his throne in Jerusalem and rule and reign there. Here's the problem with Israel, though. They had the truth. But what were they doing? They were just going through the motions, weren't they? Their heart wasn't in their worship. They crossed their theological T's and dotted their I's, but their heart was not in it, was it? That's what he told them. He told the Pharisees that. They were the religious leaders. They were the ones that controlled the temple. And he's the one, we just quoted that in Mark 7, he says, you hypocrites. You worship me with your lips, but he said, your heart is far from me. A divorce has taken place. And they weren't supposed to believe in divorce. But they divorced their lips and their hearts. That's what happened. Thus, their worship was wasted and useless. And Jesus is telling this woman, he's saying, look, God's not seeking either kind of worship like that. He doesn't want worship based on ignorance, partly true, but mostly false and influenced by the world. But he's also not pleased with worship that is correct in theology, but that lacks life. He doesn't want worship that's just the outward form, but there is no inward life. The Lord can't stand that. He says in verse 23, the hour is coming. And now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus there is talking about the true worshipers. That's what he says, as opposed to false ones that we just talked about. The Samaritans, they lacked the truth. The Jews lacked spirit. But true worshipers will have both, won't they? Spirit and truth. They'll worship in spirit and truth. And I would say to worship in the spirit is just a sign of being a Christian. Paul in Philippians 3.3, he gives three signs of what it means to be a Christian. He says, we are the circumcision, sign one, which worship God in or by the spirit. Secondly, and rejoice in Christ Jesus. And thirdly, have no confidence in the flesh. The first sign that you are born again is that you'll worship God in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates your heart, and here's the way it should be. It's not this way in a lot of places. It has nothing to do with whether a person's saved or not. But in the New Testament, when a person's regenerated, the next thing they were careful about was, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? They didn't waste any time with that. The Samaritans... In Acts 8, they get baptized, they're saved, and it says the Holy Ghost had fallen on none of them. None of them until Peter and John came down and laid hands on them. They didn't waste any time with that, did they? They didn't go years or months without receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit because that's why Jesus came, isn't it? I mean, we just, that's what we've been talking about in John 4. That's the gift. That's the living waters. That's what he talks about in John chapter 7. He died so they could be spirit-filled. He comes to live in you. And when that happens, your life should never be the same, should it? That living water should be flowing out of you in a lot of ways in praise and worship. And if it doesn't, you don't really have a heart to praise or worship. You really should question your salvation. I mean, that should just be there. Because before I became a Christian, I never sang in worship to God. 
I went to the Catholic Church. I never sang. I hated singing, especially singing at church. One time my sister brought me to a meeting that is just like ours, and it was pretty lively. I hated it. I wasn't a Christian. I hated it. I hated the singing. I hated all the praise the Lord's. I hated all the friendliness. I hated I just wanted out of there because my heart was dead. There was no life there, dead to the Lord. But when God sought me and drug me into his kingdom, kicking and shouting by his grace, and I drank that living water, I experienced what true worship is. And I couldn't get enough of it Amen. then. And that's the way it should be, shouldn't it? I mean, it was like in Acts 2, we talked about this, when the 120 were filled with the Holy Spirit, they are all speaking out with praise to God, it said, in other languages, and it had to be pretty loud because it attracted a crowd. A great crowd came around from all over the world. We do hear them speak in our tongues. What were they saying? The wonderful works of God. Spirit-filled Believers proclaiming what God had done for them. They are that excited. That's right. Amen. When Lisa and I first came down here, Bobby and Andrew, I'm like, the most excited praise when we were meeting over at that other building. I'm like, man, oh man, it's just great. <laughs> Wasn't it? We had some really good services, so we're talking about days long back for some of the younger people. That to me is what it's all about. I mean, I've always loved the Word. The Word's been number one in my life. I was raised musical, playing the piano and all that. I love music. I was an old rock and roll head, doing the wrong things to listen to it. But man, when I got saved, I didn't lose a love for music. I just gained an appreciation for good music, I believe. <laughs> but man, praise and adoration and coming into the presence of God and holiness and bowing your heart before Him, there is nothing like that, is there? And that's what he's talking about here to worship in spirit and truth. There's this inward change that takes place. Amen. Gives you a desire to give the Lord the glory that's due his name. Not only for what he's done for you, but that shouldn't be the only focus of our worship and praise, should it? It should be who he is. You see those old hymns, those men knew God. And they've got theology in their songs. There's depth to what they're saying. And they're worshiping God. When Mary visited her cousin and Elizabeth, when both of them were expecting, one expecting John the Baptist, Mary was expecting the Lord Jesus. It says Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The babe leaped in her womb. And, oh, what is it that the mother of my Lord should come visit me? Now, it doesn't say Mary was filled with the Spirit, but I believe she was. And they have what is called the Magnificent, or however you would say that. And here's what she says. I won't quote the whole thing. But Mary says this. This is worship in the Spirit. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So we're talking about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And she says, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That's a great example of true worship. Spirits rejoicing in God. Psalm 29 says, Give unto the Lord, O you mighty. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. 
Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Anytime there is a revival, that's what happens. It brings people back into an awe and true worship of God. And his spirit manifests in ways that there is this adoration and majesty and awe of him that comes over the people. Read the accounts. I've got the books if you ever want to read them. I've got plenty of them. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says this account that was found in John Wesley's journals. Talks about this. John and his brother Charles and George Whitfield. They were all friends. Now, they grew apart theologically. George Whitfield became a Calvinist. The Wesley brothers were Arminians. But I will say this about all three of them. They had a tremendous desire and heart and love for God. They did. They're meeting one night in this room. They called it a love feast. They were together for hours. And here's what Wesley wrote in his journal. He said, about 3 o'clock in the morning as we were continuing instant in prayer, how much? We have trouble getting people to come and just pray for one hour. These guys are like, that's what they're meeting to do, praying until 3 in the morning. 3 in the morning. About 3 in the morning as we were continuing instant in prayer, he writes, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. And as soon as we were covered a little from the awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. I'm reading that. I'm thinking, man, I would have loved to have been in that room. Isn't Jesus telling us through this encounter with this woman that we can experience the same thing? He's saying, you don't have to be in Wesley's room. You don't have to be anywhere. And he's saying, God is spirit. He will meet us if we seek him anywhere and everywhere, won't he? That's what it says in verse 23. Hour comes, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. Jesus said we should also not only worship in spirit, but in truth, according to the revelation of God. So Romans 1 tells us God's given us a revelation of himself. How? In nature. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We're moving every day. If you leave your house, you're moving in God's creation, aren't we? Have you ever stopped to think, man, I'm just driving. I'm not even paying attention to the sky. I'll do that. at the, Look at the sky. Just look at it. Just imagine the clouds, just everything about it or just whatever. Just anything in creation. But through that, you can grasp his power. Just look at the sky someday. His power, his beauty, his infinite goodness. But a lot of times we miss what is right under our noses, don't we? And we've missed an opportunity to worship. I heard this poem quoted by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I wouldn't be reading Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I would have had to have heard this quoted. But I thought this was really good. Listen to this. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush aflame with God. He who sees takes off his shoes and worships. The rest pluck blackberries off the bush and cram their face with it. He's saying there's some people, they see that God is in creation and they take off their shoes and they worship. 
Then there's other people, they're just taking God's creation and just stuffing their face. They're not paying attention. It doesn't mean anything to them. They're blinded to what's right under their nose. I just thought that was good. I think the saint of God should see the glory of God in creation. David said this in Psalm 8, O Lord our God, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, and who has set thy glory above the heavens? And when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? Have you ever considered the heavens? Because it says the heavens declare something. What do they declare? The glory of God. So that's one way God reveals himself in a way that we should be able to worship. And he primarily, though, reveals himself to us how? In the Bible. The truth of God, to have to worship him in spirit and truth. And the truth of God is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 1.17, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father by me. And he told Pilate in John 18, you say that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. So all of the Bible, doesn't it, reveals the nature and the character of God. Old and New Testament. Because through the Old Testament, God begins to reveal himself. And how does he reveal himself? Through his names, doesn't he? His name, he shows us when you read the Old Testament, you see that God is holy, he's righteous, that he is our provider, he's love, he is Yahweh Rophakah, our healer, gracious, the judge, and most of all, the redeemer. If you want to know God to be able to worship him in spirit and truth, we need to love our Bible. We need to live in our Bible, like our life dependent on it, because it does depend on it. Doesn't it? Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but how will we live? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So you'll never understand the New Testament unless you read your Old Testament. And that's why we preach from it frequently here. And I was alternating every other meeting was Old Testament, New Testament. All of the Old Testament revelation came to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. The character of the Father revealed in human flesh. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. When he's on the road to Emmaus, those two men are walking and are bemoaning the fact that, hey, you know, he's crucified and we thought he was going to be the one that would be the Messiah. And where is he? And well, we heard these two crazy, crazy women that are with us. They said he's risen. And Jesus said to them, though, as he's talking and walking with them, he said, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And listen to what he did. He says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Saying, he says, I am the way and the truth because all of the Bible, it all points to him. It's all fulfilled in him. All of the Old Testament types, stories, character, it all points to him. And that's why he says that. 
all of the Bible truth is critical to our worship because we have to understand, and you get this by reading the whole Bible, not listening to somebody that's pointing out proof text or reading somebody's books that they cherry pick and give a certain sense of who God is to where I don't want to hear about God's holiness, his righteousness, or his judgment anymore. I don't want to hear that. Because this person never talks about it. And that makes me uncomfortable. you got a problem. Because that's part of what God is. That's part of the revelation. He's not only gracious and loving, he's also holy and just. And he has wrath. And he is to be feared. That is our God. He is. But the most important truth that's revealed, that's taken place there in the Word... I'm not going to tell you anything, some big revelation, but it's about that our Lord Jesus Christ died for us on the cross and paid our debt. And through that, we have been released from the power of sin. That is no small truth. And through that, we are able to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Because when Jesus told the woman, the hour cometh and now is, That is a description. He's talking about the hour cometh and now is. He's talking about his death and resurrection. So he's saying, look, when that hour comes and now is, the worship of the Father will change forever because it will no longer be Mount Gerizim behind you. And it, especially even though salvation is of the Jews, it is no longer going to be the temple in Jerusalem. It's all changed because when he died on the cross and cried out, What did it say happened? The veil on the temple was rent. The temple's obsolete from that point on for worship. Totally obsolete. Because now he's saying a new, and praise God for it, a new and living way has been made through him, through his flesh being rent. A new and living way. All of the Old Testament types were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the new temple. And he dwells now in temples made without hands. He dwells in you and he dwells in me by his spirit and by his word. We are the temple of God. Amen. Amen. And the church collectively is called the temple by Paul. And so that means what? He's saying you don't have to go now to find the father in the temple in Jerusalem. We are the temple. We can bow down and worship him anywhere and everywhere that we are if you're a Christian. Our lives now should become lives of worship. Romans 12.1 says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And the King James says, which is your reasonable service. Well, service is fine, except service could also be translated correctly It's not that service is incorrectly, but it could also be translated worship, and it is in other translations. The ESV says, which is your spiritual worship, to present your body to God. The NAU says spiritual service of worship. The NIV, if you have that, says presenting your body, a living sacrifice is your true and proper worship. Giving our lives to God as a sacrifice is considered worship. That's how we serve God, however you want to say that. So that's where I'm back to. Worship is not limited to singing, is it? 
It involves our whole being at all times. Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. He says, if only you'll fall down and worship me. The devil said that to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was Jesus' answer? He says, that's not the way it should be because it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and serve him only. And you think about it. What does that do then? Worship's not just something that happens here once or twice a week. That takes worship into the workplace. That takes worship into school. That takes worship into the kitchen. You know, shining shoes, taking out the trash, doing dishes. That's worship because we work as unto the Lord. How would a slave worship? He says, hey, you're not serving that master there. You're working as unto the Lord. That's your worship. Brings glory to him. God is seeking worshipers that will bring him worship from the heart through the power of the Spirit. A renewed heart through the power of the Spirit. And that worship is shaped how? We need to have our worship shaped by the revelation of his word. Truth. True worshipers are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And I'm going to close with this. I like this hymn. Just bear with me if you don't like it but I liked it. We can sing this hymn. We praise thee, O God, our Redeemer, Creator. In grateful devotion, our tribute we bring. We lay it before thee. We kneel and adore thee. We bless thy holy name. Glad praises we sing. We worship thee, O God of our fathers. We bless thee. Through life's storm and tempest, our guide thou hast been. When perils overtake us, thou wilt not forsake us. And with thy help, O Lord, life's battles we win. With voices united, our praises we offer. And gladly, our songs of true worship we raise. Thy strong arm will guide us. Our God is beside us. To thee, our great Redeemer, forever be praise. And all the believers said, Amen. 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 Well, if you bow your heads. And Father, we do, we bow our hearts. We're not on the ground, Lord. We are in our hearts, Lord, before you, our great God, the creator of all that is. And Lord, I just ask that you'll give us all hearts that will bow before you and, and reverence your holiness, the beauty of your holiness, Lord, and your great grace and love and redemption that you've given us. Thank you that you'll do that work in us. And teach us what it means to be a true worshiper, Lord, that we worship you in spirit and in truth. And I thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen.